Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, this is the final sermon in our series, Christ and Culture, Following Jesus in a Fallen World. I hope this series has been helpful to you in some way or another, challenged you, encouraged you. If you've missed any of the previous six sermons in the series. You can listen to those at our website or at our podcast. In this series, we've been looking at what it means for disciples to be in the world, but not of it. According to Jesus and the Bible, the church should see herself as aliens and exiles on the earth. Therefore, we must be wise, discerning children of the light as we view culture through the lenses of Christ the scriptures and the gospel. So we've, we've been inviting you to apply the gospel to every area of life and use cultural discernment as we navigate the world together as kingdom people. And just for the sake of a brief review, if you're just joining us, we've defined culture this way. What human beings make of the world? What human beings make of the world? And in two senses, the things that we make so they can be anything, art, music, literature, clothing, architecture, technology, and so forth, and the meaning that we make. And notice, again, those are interlinked. The things that we make communicate meaning by what we make, who we are, why we're here, where it's all going, and so on. And so we've said that we do not want to adopt these four healthy, unhealthy, rather, postures toward culture. That is, we don't want to condemn culture. And that can look like withdrawing from it or warring against it. Doesn't, it doesn't fare well for the church when we do this. Or critiquing culture, which is only interested in discussing and debating ideas. Or copying culture, where we offer cheap imitations and alternatives. Or consuming culture, where we just mindlessly go along with the flow of whatever the world is doing. Instead, we've been saying that the kingdom approach to culture is this. The disciples, we create culture and we follow Jesus by number one, entering the culture and affirming what we can about it, being fluent in the culture. You're going to see this today, as well as challenging the culture, confronting its idols in darkness, and appealing to its listeners. Number three, appealing to its listeners, offering a new story and vision particularly the gospel one. We've unpacked each of these throughout this series in various ways, but in this final message this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul do all three of these in Acts chapter 17 when he goes to the Greek city of Athens, a great cultural center and capital of a once great empire. And after we've expounded on our scripture reading and gleaned some lessons from Paul's engagement with Greek culture, I'll invite us to follow his example, right, to, to cross the bridge from the, from the first century to the 21st century and invite us to consider what sharing the gospel looks like in our own American culture 
today. If you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, Sharing the Gospel in American Culture. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are so aware of your presence in this service this morning. You are speaking, Holy Spirit. And we want to say, as your servants, we are listening. Father, we want to bind the enemy in Jesus' name, to keep the enemy from distorting the things that will be said here, or being distracted by all of the other things going on in life. Lord, help us to be present. Help us to be attentive to your voice. Set us free this morning. Help us to see you and the beauty of the gospel in a fresh, new way. And may your people be motivated and inspired to share the gospel with others. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. As you open your Bible to Acts chapter 17, that's where we'll be, Acts chapter 17, I want to give us some background and context before we start reading there. Because we're going to start reading in verse 16, and so I want to give us some background and context of what was leading up to this uh, in chapter 16, in the beginning of chapter 17. This is Paul's second missionary journey, which some have called it, really it's apostolic. This is, this is these, these uh, apostles who've been sent out to plant churches and to spread the gospel. And Paul has gone through Macedonia. You'll notice that in the top left-hand corner of the map there, Macedonia. So he's gone through Philippi. He's gone through Thessalonica. We have epistles of Paul to, to the, both of those churches, right? Philippians and 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. And then Berea. This is the uh, group that studied the scriptures after hearing what Paul had to say and finding that indeed it was true and they believed in the good news. And then after Berea, Paul is going to go down to Athens and that's because there were angry adherents to Judaism who caused a riot because of what Paul was preaching. Now, Paul would always go to the synagogue if there was one. It, it took 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue in a town or a city. And so if there was a synagogue, Paul always went there. He felt compelled to do that. Remember, as he would say, the, the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That Christ had come to his own people first for them to respond to that message and then the gospel goes out to the Gentiles and Paul is principally the primary voice for doing that. So the angry adherence to Judaism had caused a riot and so Paul is sent out of town very quickly. He goes down to Athens and he waits on his brothers in arms, if, 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 so to speak, uh, Silas and Timothy. You can read the, again this in that passage. And so while he waits, he gets familiar with the city. Paul never just sits around or sits on his hands or wastes time. While he's waiting, he learns about the city of Athens. He learns about the popular philosophies that they ascribe to. He's learning about Athenian culture. He listens, he learns, and then he engages with leading Athenian, we could call them creators of culture, and shares with them a new story 
one of which they had not heard. So let's pick up there in Acts chapter 17, and we're just going to walk through this text together. Acts 17, beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, again, that's for Timothy and Silas, he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, in the Greek, it says literally, Paul was provoked in the spirit. Provoked in the spirit. Paul, in seeing the paganism and specifically the idolatry of Athens, was moved. Maybe we should stop and ask ourselves that question when we look at American culture. What provokes us in the spirit? Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue, because we said that's what he would always do first, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, who are, who are these folks? These are two primary philosophies of the day. The Epicureans, they believe that life is about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Those are Epicureans, not Americans. But you can see the similarities. The Stoics, they put an emphasis on human reason and self-sufficiency. Uh, maybe, again, another American quality. Now look how they respond in hearing Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And notice this is an insult. They called Paul a babbler. Have you ever experienced someone doing what we call an ad hominem attack? This is, they don't engage with your ideas, they attack you as a person. Maybe to undermine your credibility, right? They don't want to engage with the message, with the content, with the ideas, so they demean you and they degrade you. This is what they seem to be doing with Paul. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Ah, the resurrection. Now, you and I, we're familiar with that. We're Christians, right? We believe in the resurrection. But we have to understand that this idea is so totally foreign. Oh, yes, they can, of, of course, conceive of the idea that, that okay, I hear you saying a, this guy died and, and then he rose again. It wasn't so much that he rose again that baffled them. It's that they had no real concept in their Greek philosophies for it because they taught something quite the opposite. This challenged their view of the soul and of the body. Uh, remember, they believed in the immortality of the soul. Some people think that actually that's Christian theology. It's not. It's Greek philosophy. If, if you want immortality of the soul, you need Jesus. That's Christian theology. But Greek philosophy would say that the soul is what is good, the spirit is what is good, the body, physical matter is corrupted, it's evil, it needs to be discarded of. 
Uh, so you can see, if you, if you listen to that, how Greek philosophy sort of made its, wiggled its way into Christian theology, where a lot of Christians say that kind of thing, but that's not Christian theology. Our body's not just some shell that houses our soul for a temporary time until, so until we can discard of it. No, not at all. So this is where their big hang-up is. Okay, so Paul is telling them about Jesus of Nazareth and how he was crucified by the Romans and that his own people rejected him, but that he was resurrected, that, that the God that Paul is proclaiming affirms the body, affirms creation and says it's good and he's not going to kick it into the cosmic trash can. That was radical and it was too much for them to hear. Verse 19, then they took him brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? What is the Areopagus? I put a picture up here for you of uh, Athens, Greece in modern times. Raise your hand if you've ever been to this place. Oh, look at that. Lots of you have been to Athens, Greece. Thank you. Notice the bottom left hand toward the center, uh, bald hill there of rock, this exposed rock. That is where the Areopagus would have been. And behind that is the, what's known as the Acropolis, where the Greek Parthenon is. So this is where Paul is invited to go to, to share his ideas. Now the Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. And in Greek philosophy, Ares is the god of war. Uh, the Romans called him Mars, right? It's named a planet after, Mars. Uh, the Greek god of war. So some people refer to this as Mars Hill. It was a court just below the highest hills, I said the Acropolis, where an aristocratic body would make judgments on matters of religion and morals. And they would, of course, lump what Paul is saying into those categories. And they would decide what is acceptable and what is unacceptable in Athenian culture. And to be clear, Paul wasn't standing trial. He was simply being given an opportunity to expound on his teaching before the so-called experts. Verse 20 and 21. They said, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It makes you wonder how in the world they could afford to eat, but... Basically, what uh, Luke is telling us is they like to talk about the latest ideas. They like to talk philosophy. They, even theology, in this case, they, they, they wanted to debate. And so Paul has something for them. Verse 22. Look at verse 22. Now Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now notice, remember, what was Paul feeling when he saw those idols? He was provoked in his spirit. He, he was distressed, the NIV says. Probably a little angry, right? He's a Jew. He's a monotheistic Jew, and all idols are dead except God, but Paul doesn't respond that way. 
Paul finds a way to affirm them, to compliment them, right? To say, I see that you are very religious. <laughs> you can hear Paul saying, so am I. I'm, I'm religious like you are religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. I mean, that's how religious these people are. They don't want to offend a God they don't know. <laughs> and notice that, that Paul sees this statue and he's like, you know, he's like, that's it. That's what I'm going to use to introduce them to the good news about Jesus, that I come proclaiming the God that they don't know. It's good. Oh, that's good. So, look what he says. You are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, that, that does, that, don't let that uh, sound to you the way it sounds to us. That's not what, what Paul means is, I know that you're agnostic about this. You, you, you don't have the information that I'm about to share with you. So they wouldn't have seen this or heard this as an insult. They'd have been like, oh, good, more information, more things to think about, more ideas to debate. Look at verse 28. All right, where am I at? Don't skip that far. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, here comes the challenge. Paul is starting to challenge their idols, challenge their concept of the gods. And he's not served, verse 25, by human hands as if he needed anything. This was, of course, the Greek concept, right? That, that we need to serve the gods, but not just serve the gods, but help them out. The gods can't exist without us. Rather, this God I'm proclaiming to you, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul is saying, this God doesn't need a thing. Doesn't need anything from you. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. In your Bible, you should have quotations there. He's quoting someone. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And then another quote, we are his offspring. What is Paul doing here? You know, normally somebody stands up to preach the gospel, particularly in this context, what would they preach from? The Bible. <laughs> Paul doesn't. Because they don't know of the Bible. You know, going to people and say, thus saith the Lord, or the Bible says to people who don't know the Lord and don't have a respect or believe in the authority of the Bible, don't give a flip about you quoting scriptures. So Paul doesn't do that. Again, I think context matters, the audience matters. Sometimes it would be appropriate to quote the scriptures or if somebody asks you to quote the scriptures or what does the scripture say, okay. But Paul doesn't. Instead, Paul quotes two popular lines from well-known philosophers, the first being Epimenides and the second Eratus, 
Both were poems about the Greek god Zeus, the ruler over all Greek gods. What is Paul doing? Paul seems to indicate, now this is where some of us, <laughs> you got to be careful with this, right? Because some would say, ah, oh, we all worship the same God. We just call him by different names. Blech. It's not what the Bible says, folks. Now, all truth is God's truth. Amen? And, and, and God has disseminated and people have discovered truth in different religions. We will affirm this. But notice Paul is not doing that, right? That stuff. Paul is saying, I've come to, to share with you that which Zeus is but an echo. Zeus is merely a, a signpost. You've got a taste of the true God. Let me tell you about who he is. So we're not the offspring of Zeus. Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying, rather the offspring of the God he is proclaiming. That's who you are. And then Paul challenges their idols even further. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, right? Like a, a physical image made by human design and skill. Paul's saying no. Again, challenging their idols. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, such agnosticism, right? In the past, he did so, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, stop going the direction you're going in. Do a 180, right? You're going down one path. It's a destructive path. It's a, it's a path maybe filled with some truths, but also a lot of falsehoods. Stop going that way, and go the way of truth. Go the way of the gospel. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Again, Paul goes to the resurrection. As we learn from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. And so we would expect Paul to be preaching resurrection. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Did you notice what Paul did in his engagement with the Greek high council? Notice how Paul models a kingdom approach to culture. Number one, Paul enters culture and affirms his listeners by saying, I see that you are very religious. Again, a compliment, affirming something good about them. In other words, Paul is saying, with you, I share this, this religiosity. I'm a religious Jew. So he affirms them. He begins by doing that, but also showing his cultural fluency. Again, when he says, as some of your own poets have said, this would be like Paul quoting the, uh, the pop stars of the day. 
right? I think some of the musicians today might be the philosophers that we're looking for. They're the philosophers of the day. And Paul is, is quoting a poem or, or quoting maybe a song to say something about the gospel. Again, he doesn't quote the Bible and he doesn't shame them in anger. He begins by affirming them, by showing he's familiar with their world. That's his way in. Number two, Paul challenges their idols and their darkness by saying he is the God who made the world. Right? And we shouldn't think of God as an idol made by human hands. And, and he also says God commands everyone to repent of their sins. So he, he enters their culture. He affirms them, saying something good about them. He challenges their idols and their darkness. And then number three, Paul appeals to his listeners by sharing some of the gospel story and inviting them to reimagine God, to reimagine themselves to reimagine their world, to actually rethink everything they thought they knew about the way the world is and where the world is going. So think about that, church. Think about Paul's approach. We might look at, uh, like, we might look at it and, and, and say, um, what might it look like to share the gospel today in a similar manner as Paul? I'm going to give you some examples of this. Here's how we define the gospel. I think, I think we need to remember what the gospel is. This is how we defined it in a fall series last year. The gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. To be even more specific, what is the gospel story? The, the gospel story, remember, began in Genesis. It's the story of Israel. It's the, it's, it's the Old Testament. It's that larger biblical story of God bringing about his plan in Jesus. It's the story of Jesus the Messiah, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It is the story of what Jesus continues to do through his church as we anticipate his return. The gospel story tells us that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we are not our own, that we're bought at a price. And all those who believe and embody the good news will be saved and that this is how we come into the kingdom. Folks, do you hear what I'm saying? Nothing in that is, do you know if you were to die today where you would go? You see, that, that is a, a reductionist view of the gospel. Rather, we have a story, and a story with many places in which we can enter into other people's story that cross and intersect depending on what they need and where they are, what they need to hear. This is what I see Paul doing there at the Areopagus. This is, this is what it means to come into the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. We're seeing glimpses of it. We're seeing the kingdom break in and break through, but it's not here fully, right? Because we're still dealing with sin and death. We're still in the present evil age, but it's coming and we see signs of it. We live in the overlap of the ages. Heaven is coming to earth. God's space and our space will be joined in Christ's return. And we've illustrated this larger good news story in this way. I know that the top <clears throat> illustration there is what many of us grew up with. And some of us are still kind of, that's our default. We're locked into thinking of the gospel this way. But I'm, I'm challenging us not to do that. 
Why? Because we miss so much when we do. We miss so much when we do. Now, maybe that worked back in the 40s and the 50s and post-World War II, you know, sort of the, this Billy Graham approach where people were thinking about death all the time and they, they realized how short life was, but that's not what people are thinking about so much today. That's not the questions that they're asking. And again, this is not a complete picture, this top illustration of what the gospel is. Rather, it's the one we see here at the bottom. It is God's created two spaces, heaven and earth. They're overlapping. Jesus there in the center of those spaces shows us that God affirms and that God is bringing together heaven and earth. The resurrected body of Jesus is heaven and earth married, coming together. It's God's way of saying, this is what I'm going to do with all of creation. This is the good news. We're the ones, and fallen angels are the ones that have created hell. We're the ones that have brought that into existence. But one day God is going to dispel of it. He's going to rid it of his creation when heaven and earth come together. Are you following this story? This is the story that we need to hear. This is the story that people need to hear. So when Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, maybe you've heard this growing up in the church, bring this robust definition of the gospel into play. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Pray for me that I can get to this message without losing my voice. Look there, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So Paul has in mind a robust story, folks, a cosmic story of God's creation, the human fall, how Christ and the gospel is what the world needs to be healed, and is in fact where the world is headed. This is God's plan. This is God's good future. And so since we're not talking about an oversimplified reductionist, even distorted view of the gospel, we have a message, a good news that touches every aspect of culture. Every aspect of culture. You may need to stop and think about it, but it does. Every aspect of culture, every aspect of our lives, and it has something to say about it. And so when we're ministering to people, likely not preaching in the Areopagus, likely not in an open forum like Paul was, but in relationships, we're sharing the gospel. We need to think about where are the on-ramps? Where are the people? Where are they at? Where, where, what do they need to hear? What of the gospel do they need to hear? What of the gospel speaks to their specific situation? You follow me? So our task as disciples, whether you have the gift of evangelism or not, right? None of us get topped out of this. Is like Paul in Athens to be aware of the culture's objects of worship and be willing and able to engage your neighbors at those places where you see there is cultural captivity to sin, right? Because Paul is provoked in the spirit because he sees not a people that, hey, they're getting along quite fine. Why do I need to preach the gospel to them? He sees people, whether they realize it or not, that are in cultural bondage. They have believed a lie. And so have we in the past. But now we know by God's grace, we know and we can share with them in grace the good news that we ourselves have received. He sees that they're enslaved to sin. He, he sees that the world is not going to answer their deepest longings. And so Paul gives them the gospel. 
We saw what that looked like with Paul in Athens. What does that look like today? Or in other words, if Paul came to an American city and shared the gospel in American culture, here are some objects of worship or idols that he might address. Think about these. I could hear Paul saying, I see that you're very sexual and seeking fulfillment. I see that you're all about human autonomy and self-expression. I see that you're very concerned about human rights and justice. I see that you create amazing technology, art, entertainment, and sports. Many of you are all about that. Your whole family life is devoted to that. I see that you, 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 you long for a sense of identity, of self-worth, and of purpose. And Paul may say, I care about those things too. Now notice, folks, these are access points. Some of these, and this is just a sampling of them, are access points to sharing the gospel today. And I think it's important to show how American culture's answers are in themselves self-defeating. Only Christ and the gospel can meet our deepest needs and longings and lead to freedom, wholeness, and justice. So maybe Paul might say something like this. I see that you're very sexual and seeking fulfillment. But, but the gospel says that God has a specific design for human sexuality. One that leads to freedom. All others lead to bondage. He might say, I see that you're all about human autonomy and self-expression, but the gospel says that we are a part of a community. We're not an island unto ourselves. And what have we done with that human freedom? We have used our freedom for evil. We cannot save ourselves. We're not going to invent our way out of this. Technology is not going to save us. I see that you're very concerned about human rights and justice. But Paul, I could hear him saying, but the gospel says that without God, without a belief in God and the imago Dei, that is that we were all created in God's image, in us, human dignity and justice falls apart. Human dignity and justice is just, it depends on what your opinion is. There's no objective moral lawgiver. It's make it up as you go. That might be right for you, but it, who says it's right for me? Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? You can't do that when there's no objective moral lawgiver. And so you hear Paul saying, your, your desires for justice, human rights, they're good. But don't you see that without the Imago Dei, without the image of God, without the, the belief of a creator who made you in his image and has a, has a specific design and plan for things, if you ignore that, folks, it's disaster. It's moral confusion and chaos. Now I can hear Paul say, I see you create amazing technology, art, entertainment, and sports. That's cool. I like iPhones too, but the gospel says that these things can become towers of Babel. Remember that message in the series? They can become towers of Babel. They, they will not bring us happiness. They will not save us. And lastly, I hear Paul saying, I see that you, have, you, know, you long for a sense of identity, self-worth, and purpose. That's so good. You know, it's, it's like there's a God-shaped hole in you, though, and 
you gotta, you gotta see that only God can fill it. The gospel says that you need someone that is God to tell you who you are. Oh, this so flies in the face of our culture. You're not gonna tell me who I am, I know who I am. But the Bible says you need somebody to tell you who you are, right? This is what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep know my voice and I call them out each one by one by name. So again, part of our, our task is to find the access points into culture where people are in cultural bondage and they may not always see it. And maybe you don't literally say to someone, I see that you're very sexual. You know, maybe you don't say that. But maybe you say, you know what? You, you really can see, seem to be consumed a lot about your human sexuality. You, you really seem to be fixated on this. Let's talk about that. Why? Well, what are we, what are we getting at? You, you, you might not say, I, I see that you're all about human autonomy and self-expression, but there might be some other way of getting at that and say, you know, let's, let's talk about that thing that you are so passionate about and getting your life from. You say, yes, the way that we live matters. We certainly emphasize that at Grantham and as an Anabaptist. And it's important in sharing the gospel. So are the words that we use. Finally, listen to what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. He said, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. This is a metaphor. <laughs> we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and we teach them to obey Christ. How do we do this? We share the gospel. We share the gospel. And this is our invitation as we come to the end of this series to take what we've learned, to, to view the culture through the lenses of Christ, the scriptures, and the gospel and be willing to share that gospel with those in need. Here's some questions for reflection and response to help us respond to God and to respond to his spirit and what we've, we've heard the Lord saying to us in this series. Number one, as you, as you carefully look at the objects of worship in American culture, how are you being moved to say or do something? What provokes you in your spirit? I want to challenge you, encourage you to listen to that. What is it that provokes you in your spirit? Don't make this about your politics, right? Your opinion about the kingdoms of the world and how they ought to operate. Nobody cares, right? Make this about a lost world that needs Jesus. Where are the objects of worship? What provokes you in your spirit and moves you to do or say something? Number two, who is the spirit bringing to your mind that does not know Christ? You know, this could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a coworker. Who is it? How can you affirm, as we saw Paul doing in Athens, how can you affirm and show that you're fluent with their world? You're familiar and you care about their world. And then when you've gained their trust and you've gained a listening ear, challenge them in love. 
appeal to them, tell them the gospel story and whatever it is in, in the parts of that they need to hear. Number three, what would be a major takeaway? Maybe there's several, but what would be a, one major takeaway for you from this series? What is the Spirit speaking to you? How is God calling you to respond to this series? And how is God calling our church to be a different kind of church? Reject those four C's and embrace these three things of entering and affirming what we can, of being willing and prepared to challenge the culture's idols in darkness, and to be able to share the gospel with those who need it. Brothers and sisters, we bring this series to a close today, but let us continue in the way that we've been traveling these past seven weeks. The disciples of Jesus who seek to create culture by entering the culture, challenging its idols in darkness and appealing to our listeners, let us keep saying yes to knowing the gospel and being transformed by it as we worship the Lord together here at Grantham Church. And may we be disciples who remind one another of the countercultural good news of Jesus as we commit to being in the world but not of it, as we commit ourselves to being wise, discerning children of the light, aliens and exiles who are always viewing culture through Christ, the Scriptures, and the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you've given us the Scriptures in this story here in Acts 17 to show us a, a wonderful, beautiful, really, way of engaging the culture. Thank you, Lord, that Paul was faithful and obedient to you, that he didn't respond out of his anger and frustration or out of his politics or some other junk like that. But rather, he responded out of love for these people and out of a real conviction that the world needs Jesus. Lord, help us to do the same. Lord, that we might be that shining city on a hill and that others would know where to come to for life. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.